Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that if we all work together, there is time to create the future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. I'm Amanda Scott, your host in this journey into possibility, and as I might have mentioned once or twice recently, I am in the editing phase of the new book. The bit where you carve it into tiny pieces, throw significant chunks of it in the recycling, because words are never wasted and text storage is basically free, and rebuild the rest into something shinier and sharper and generally more succinct. And then you do it again. And again. And I am telling you this because this week's guest is a fellow writer. So she knows what it's like to stare at a blank page until your forehead bleeds and then to go through multiple iterations of the editing process. But in this case, she is also an academic psychologist who has the data to back up the value of Thrutopian writing. As you will hear, Denise Baden is a professor of sustainable practice at the University of Southampton. And she says that working in sustainability and climate change, the more you know, the scarier it is. Like the sun, you can't look too closely at it. But face to one side you make your way, because in fact, it's easy to put everything right. All the solutions are right here. They just have to catch on. Walking lightly and mindfully upon the earth is doable. She goes on, I started writing as therapy with green solutions as the main ingredient, stories to soothe my soul. Then my characters and their stories took over centre stage, leaving the green solutions to season the stew. Which strikes me as one of the best ways of getting our stories out there, of getting Thrutopian narratives into the world. And Denise is one of life's people who sees a problem and starts creating real-world solutions. In 2018, she set up the series of free Green Stories writing competitions to inspire writers to create positive visions of what a sustainable society might look like and to tell stories that showcase solutions, not just problems, because her data shows that that's what we need. In the process, as you will also hear, she carried on researching what actually works in terms of fiction and climate communication. And the result of all of that is that she's written her own book, The Habitat Man. She's compiled an anthology of short stories called No More Fairy Tales, Stories to Save Our Planet, which she had ready by COP27, so there was a copy for every delegate to read. And absolutely magnificently, she is on the Forbes list of climate leaders. I am so impressed with all that she is and all that she does. So people of the podcast, please welcome Professor Denise Baden of the University of Southampton. Denise, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. It's a pleasure to welcome you this sunny afternoon. How are you in Southampton? Yes, I'm in Southampton. Delighted to be invited and pleased there's a little bit of sunshine out the window for a change. Yeah, we had enough. We had enough rain. We needed the rain, but we've had enough now. Weather gods listen, a little bit of sun is just fine. Everything here is growing like fury. May is such an amazing month because 
you've planted all the stuff in April and it just kind of thinks about peeking up through the earth and then my beans are growing several inches a day. I'm just so happy. <laughs> but the ponies are getting very fat, only out at night. So you have had a very interesting career trajectory and it seems to me that you are one of the people who really gets what's going on and that you're able to bring the weight of academia to bear on the problem in a way that is practical and intelligent and seems to be bringing other people in. Can you give us a really brief intro to how you came to be the person who set up Green Stories and wrote Habitat Man and all of the other amazing things that you've done? Yes, sure. Um, I have had quite a butterfly background, I guess. Um, I went to university a uh, year later than everyone because I wanted to be a bit rebellious and not go because it was expected. But work was quite boring, so I did go. <laughs> what did you work as in the boring year? Oh, insurance. It was so dull. Um, okay. Yes, and, that sounds dull. <laughs> but I have that taste. You know, everything when you're a writer is resource material. It's, That's true. That, nothing is wasted. Um, and then I did politics and economics, and then I went right back in the world of work. Um, first for a non-profit, uh, then for a pharmaceutical industry, then um, self-employed as a sales rep for book publishers. Oh, which one? Uh, it was Mearhurst and Fiden and New Holland. It's mostly non-fiction, right. sort of art, cookery, natural history. And then I, when I had children, it was quite hard to combine that with work. So I went back to do a PhD in psychology. And um, then I don't know how I ended up in the business school. Um, <laughs> it's a long story. But I did, and I got caught up in teaching uh, business ethics and sustainability, simply because I'd nagged them about their lack of recycling. Oh, neat. And along the process, I guess I became a bit of a greenie from reading uh, Ben Elton. Um, he wrote quite a lot of fiction. He's now more screenplays, I think, but he still does fiction. Um, but he, he was very good at integrating green issues in a very fun mainstream fiction. And I became a bit of a climate activist because you know what it's like once you kind of face to face with the issues it's really hard to think oh my god why isn't everyone running around doing something so I kind of I guess I've used my academic background as a bit of a platform to try and engage people and my whole point is trying to move beyond preaching to the converted so I've done a big project on sustainable hairdressing using hairdressers to share <laughs> sustainable advice. And, and another thing was um, people don't realise how much a high, high, high carbon footprint hair care can have. Some of us do. <laughs> but some people, I was amazed, you know, they'll wash your hair, they'll rinse, repeat, conditioner, rinse, repeat, and, you know, do that every day. And then just keep adding stuff to your perfectly good hair. Yes. And your hairdresser talks to you for however long it takes to do all this stuff to your hair. Right. And they could be talking green stuff. That's genius. <laughs> yes, we have these eco tips on mirrors saying, you know, you know, am I shampooing too often? Answer, yes. You know, what about leave-in conditioner? Have you tried dry shampoo? Because it's all about reducing your water footprint, really. That's where the energy cost comes in. So you didn't think we'd be talking about sustainable hair care? I, I really didn't, but this is very <laughs> good. Yes. I'd like to surprise you. Um, and then another platform I had, because I, you know, you find out learning quite a lot about sustainable solutions when you work in the field. And I got so fed up of 
my article's hardly ever been cited. Like, you know, if you're really lucky, your article might be read by five, maybe even six people. Right, yes. <laughs> Understood by fewer when you read the citations. And I thought, I need a bigger platform. And um, so I set up the Green Stories project. And the idea of that was try to encourage writers to kind of smuggle green solutions into stories aimed at the mainstream. And then I did a bit of research and I came to the conclusion the way we are communicating climate issues, we've kind of been doing it all wrong. And I think five years ago, this was definitely the case. It was all about catastrophe. The idea was if you scare people enough, then they will give up flying, give up beef. But the fact is, I learned from my psychology experiments, there's something, I don't know if you've heard it, called terror management theory. <laughs> oh, no, tell us about that. Well, they, they interview people like either in front of a funeral parlour or in front of like a supermarket. And they find that responses, when they're implicitly primed with, say, death, are much more self-protective. Um, so they'd be much more likely to vote for anti-immigration policies. Is a good example. Or, or just to go totally right wing. Yes, yeah. yes. So if you scare people, they're more likely to turn to sort of prepper type behaviour, you know, stocking up their larders, looking after number one, than they are to actually do anything that's actually going to help. Right. And yes. we think, and a lot of writers think, and a lot of climate fiction writers think, I, I want to, to give my life to, to making the world a better place. If I tell people how terrible it's all going to be, if we won't do anything, they will then behave the way I hope they will. Mm. And my research, and I've done quite a lot of research on this, shows they won't. No, it just doesn't work. work. No way. Yeah. Oh, my word. Not only are we not do, you know, we'll be doing it all wrong. And, you know, some people are scared by fear, but a lot of people go to denial, avoidance. So, yes. So what research have you done? Just can we unpick this a little mm. bit? Because it seems to me this is staringly obvious because if it were going to work it would have worked a long time ago we, we've had this narrative of things are getting bad no guys things are getting really bad no they really 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 are getting bad guys for decades now and you know if you go out into the mainstream business as usual is still the narrative so what data have you got to support this let's stop writing dystopias because it doesn't work okay so i've got data from three completely different domains it started with my business ethics students when I discovered that the typical way of teaching is to use case studies of business scandals. And the idea is you tell them what went wrong, how terrible that was, and students then won't do that. But I found that I was showing them how to be unethical in order to gain a competitive advantage. And I thought, that wasn't my point. Whoa. So, <laughs> I st and I'd also done some research on whether people who'd done my courses were any more ethical in terms of, say, choosing fair trade products or, you know, no. So, um, I, I put some in, some were in one class, some were in another, and they all had the same lectures. So, you did controlled trials on your students? Another controlled trial. <laughs> yes. Did they know that you were doing this? Did yes. you have an ethical... Yeah, oversight for this. I did. I said, I'm doing two types and then halfway through you'll swap over and I will ask you on your reflections. Okay. And some were exposed to your typical case studies of unethical business and some were exposed to sustainable enterprises, you know, ethical business leaders. And I found very clearly that the more positive role models were much more likely to lead to ethical intentions. And then I took that out beyond the student world and I thought, paid a load of participants and um, primed them with either unethical or positive role models. 
And I found there was a distinct effect, and it was mediated, to use the academic term, by, by cynicism. So showing unethical behavior makes people cynical. They don't want to be disadvantaged by being the only one behaving, the, the sucker effect. <laughs> so, and they think it's less likely you can succeed by being ethical, so it leads to less ethical intentions. Whereas if you see someone behaving in an ethical way, you're inspired, there's this process called elevation which is that sense of sort of heart opening you get when you hear of people doing wonderful things I mean your you know your podcast is really good for that you listen you think I've done wonderful things and you feel you want to do the same Um, so the positive role models led to much more ethical intentions I didn't measure actual behavior always a limitation Um, and then I looked at news because I thought where are we hearing most of the stuff on the environment and I looked at news stories traditional news, i.e. negative, catastrophic, (laughs) uh, versus solutions. Hmm. And again, I found that the more positive, constructive journalism, we call it, made people happier, more positive, more optimistic, more hopeful, the negative ones, pessimistic, more anxious, depressed. You'd expect that, particularly among female respondents, actually. Uh, Do we know why? Have you got a psychological reason for why? I, I yes, I do actually. <laughs> um, I, generally, w- women demonstrate more empathy. So you know, when, when I listen to something terrible going on, I literally feel it myself, and that's unpleasant. So I, there's a lot I can't enjoy on television. I spend a lot of it hiding behind my hands. <laughs> so do men not feel that? Do they not get that twist oh, in the stomach? I never like to do you know all men this, all women that. But there no, is there's a spectrum. Yeah, oh. as a spectrum, women are more likely to be more empath- empathetic. Yes. So let's get back to the new study. Um, so while you know people liked positive news, a lot of people would assume that it would be the negative ones that would actually make people act. Um, in fact, when I took this, whenever I ask people in talks, they always say, yes, the, the negative ones would prompt me to act. But the results were completely different. When I asked, like, you know, following this, you know, story about the cleanup of the oceans, <laughs> You know, how likely are you to, you know, write your MP about oceans, take part in a project yourself, contribute to an environmental charity, be more environmentally responsible yourself? They were way more likely to say they would than those who'd watched, you know, one of those really powerful programs about plastic in the oceans, which move your heart. I mean, they really yes. do. Yes. And that was a surprise, uh, but it replicated what I'd seen in the education one. So do you think that's because... The solution-based ones give you solutions. And the the horror stories of, of, look, here's a turtle strangling on yet another can wrapper just doesn't give you an idea of what you can do. It doesn't give you a sense of agency or direction. Did you did you kind of loop down into the why of this, or are we just are we gathering the data? I mean, you, you pick the, hair, uh, the nail on the head with the word agency. So if you look at psychological theory, probably the best-known theory is the theory of planned behaviour. And that says our behaviour is affected by our attitudes and beliefs, social norms, and what they call perceived behavioural control, agency. You know, can you feel you can make a difference? And pretty well, almost all climate communications focus on attitudes, changing your beliefs. So how it might apply to a behaviour might be recycling. If you have a positive attitude about it, social norms, will people disapprove of you if you don't? (laughs) Uh, or approve of you if you do, and agency, is there a recycling bin available? 
And the research clearly shows that that sense of agency and social norms are much stronger predictors than attitude. So most climate communications focus on attitude. So yes, you might show terrible things happening and that increases the belief something should be done. Whether you will do it or not depends much more on social norms. Is it usual, you know, expected to do it and how easy it is to do it? And that's where we need to focus it. And that's where solution-focused approaches are way more effective. Yes. So so we have leverage points. We do. So how do we exert those? Because it seems to me things I'm thinking of seatbelts, smoking, drink driving, all of these have become socially unacceptable in our lifetimes. But we haven't got very long with this and we are in the middle of a poly crisis. So this is a question, maybe you have something else you wanted to say first, but my the big question that hits me now is how do we change the social norms so that our actions are in alignment with a flourishing planet? And that's a really big question. Yes. But I think you were about to say something else. So let's park that question and come back to it. No, no, I'm, I like a good tangent. I zigzag everywhere. We'll, we'll come back to the third study, but I'll address your point because it's a really good one. Um, and I think culture has a huge part to play here. So everyone thinks it's government policies or regulation or we just switch to renewable energy and everything will be fine. But it's culture that tells us what's normal, what we aspire to. what, And you see that, for example, on TV, on our soap opera characters, our favourite sitcom characters, are they showing behaviours that have, you know, really high carbon footprint? What does their behaviour tell you about their implicit attitude towards the planet? What's their framing? Yeah. Yeah. Now, for me, I am hyper aware of the impacts of my behaviour because it's my area. I'm not going to criticise people who aren't. You know, we're taught not to be aware, quite frankly, (laughs) Because of the world I'm in, I'm very aware. So if I see someone on television ordering, you know, tons of a beef burger, it's always a beef burger they eat and they're throwing it away. To me, I think, well, what's wrong with the doggy bag? <laughs> Why can no one eat anything on television? Or if I see wanton destruction or, or, you know, crazy shopping, to me, I see that connection. So I'm working on a project now with BAFTA and Albert, which is the sustainability wing of BAFTA, And um, we've developed some really fun Instagram images with Rubber Republic, who they do such great stuff. They're so fun. And we try to make really witty kind of Instagrams to to make that point in a non-finger-waggy way. So, for example, we compare Jack Reacher with James Bond. And you've got James Bond with his single-use sports car, Aston Martin, (laughs) You've got his walking wardrobe of luxury suits, you know. You've got Jack Reacher, he travels everywhere by bus. He only wears secondhand clothes. You know, he takes one planet's worth of resources to kill the bad guys. James Bond, you know, we'd need 20 planets if we all live like like he does. So we're sharing them and just trying to start that conversation. You make me want to go on Instagram. And and I used to share a publicist with Lee Child. So um Oh wow. So it is interesting. He's he's not unaware of what he's doing for sure. So fairly relatively recently, I had a conversation with a friend who writes scripts for soaps. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was actually before lockdown. It's not that recently, but even so, it's within within a reasonable span. And 
would put in things like the characters taking out the recycling. Mm -hmm. And it would be written out every single time because, and I quote directly, our income depends on the advertisers who want everyone to have new granite worktops in their kitchen every year. You cannot do anything to suggest that that's a bad idea. So they were aware that that even having a character putting out the recycling might trigger some kind of awareness and sense of agency in people such that they wouldn't throw away their kitchen and buy a new one every year. Mm-hmm. My, my friend no longer writes scripts for the soaps. Have you, in your work, had any sense that the people who were writing that out are beginning to see that maybe that's not such a wise move? Well, there is a big change, I think, in the script writing sector. There's a real awareness. So Hollywood have got a climate summit now. There's loads of production companies looking for scripts that incorporate climate solutions. It's very much on the radar. And I've done it. I tied a survey to this Instagram campaign to try and get a sense of where the public were at. Mm. So we asked them, what do you think? You know, should script writers write what they want? Are we just being boring? Or do you think actually it is quite jarring now to be presenting high carbon consumption as aspirational? Um, And so far, um, no one's really pushed back on it. People do think, yes, you know, why are they still doing all these travel programs, promoting, actively promoting far-flung destinations? Why does The Guardian have adverts for cruises right next to its, you know, stuff about global heating and how bad it is and, you know, here are some very sad turtles in a faraway place. But never mind, you could go on a cruise there and it would all be fine. Yes. So I want to drill a bit deeper into here because it seems to me you're thinking systemically. And yet a lot of the people that I encounter, not necessarily in the podcast, but out in the world, are still, I get the impression, looking for the magic bullet that will allow business as usual to continue just with less carbon. And and my feeling, and I'm assuming your understanding too, is this isn't just a carbon problem. We're in the middle of a polycrisis and we're using all of human ingenuity to basically wipe out life on the planet and simply using less carbon isn't going to cut it. But that means I would suggest that even Jack Reacher, charming and lovely though he is, he's still living in the old paradigm. Are you seeing within Hollywood, within the film industry, an interest not only in writing scripts that are new paradigm, and I'd like to come to what does new paradigm look like, but to change their industry? Because the little tiny bits I've been involved with filmmaking, the waste is astonishing. The only other place I've come on anything similar is in hospitals. And it's, it's it's on an industrial scale. They use things, they throw them away. Whatever the stars want, they will get. Whatever technology you want costs hundreds of thousands of pounds. And if it breaks, we throw it away and get a new one. We use a set and we throw it away because it's actually cheaper to build the next one next time than it is to store it in case we want to do another series of episodes. It's catastrophically not regenerative. It's it's totally old paradigm. And it strikes me that energetically... And emotionally, making scripts that might potentially be heading us in the direction of a new paradigm, making them in the old paradigm way, is is a bit like everybody smoking while they design the anti-smoking ads. (laughs) It's it's not a good thing. Um, Open to thoughts on that. Uh, I hope it's not like that, but it probably is. I know that Albert... um, 
which is, like I said, the sustainability wing of BAFTA. Um, they did a talk um, just last week. I was there. Hey. Oh. oh, tell us all about it. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, well, well I, I turned up. It's the Media Production and Technology Show. I turned up to talk about script writing and climate. Yay. And, um, but then there were three sessions after me, exactly on what you were talking about, on how you can actually do more sustainable production, less resource use, less energy intensive, less waste. Um, so it is happening. Okay, at least they're asking the questions. Yeah, and it's just like more and more festivals now, music festivals are, you know, being much more aware of waste. I think that is beginning to happen now. But Glastonbury, day after Glastonbury, you still see a sea of abandoned tents. Well, I know. <laughs> Thinking about it and doing it strike me is not quite the same thing. I mean, this is, we're, we're really, cl- I think we're really close to an edge where thinking about it for very much longer will be too late. It's like thinking about not driving the bus towards the edge of the cliff while still dumping your foot on the accelerator. But maybe I'm just having a downer today. You sound like you get all the great gigs. I'm deeply envious. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> How did your talk go down? Um, yeah, it went down, went down really well. I, I went quite subtle, to be honest, uh, because I wasn't dealing with people who necessarily, you know, were climate scriptwriters. They were just normal script writers and so I and I also don't think anyone's going to respond well to the idea that every plot should have characters who are greener than average I mean first they want to entertain but I did say you could at least just not be part of the problem how would you outline that because I I don't watch television anymore so this is this is hopeless but let's say back in the days of I don't know Game of Thrones or Killing Eve are two of the big things that I remember watching when I did watch television. Mm. The whole, let's go. For, have you watched Killing Eve? Is that a useful one? I have. Okay, I have. so it was it was exciting and sparkly, and it had girl on girl sex. I think that's grand, but it was an urban thriller essentially, wasn't it? Predicated on totally old paradigm values of power over and violence wins, other than perhaps persuading Eve to take out the recycling. I struggle to see how any part of that could be made in a way that moved us forward. Well, I gave up watching it once they killed off my favourite character. I was just so upset due to my high empathy. Oh, I only watched the first series. So so don't tell me because I might get to watching the rest. (laughs) It it, it was the first series. Um, But I can give examples from ones I know. So the other day I was watching Grace, which is a crime procedural and... Um, there's a character that every week he sort of solves a mystery, but the overarching plot is that his wife disappeared nine years ago and he doesn't know she's dead. And is he going to register her dead and move on? So he decides he will, and he takes her car to the car breakers and he says, smash it up. And they say, well, there's a lot of life left in this car. It's hardly been used, you know, no mileage. And he's so, you know, emotionally delicate, he can't bear the thought he might see someone driving it. So all that embedded carbon that I agonised over and thinking, can I justify an EV? You know, it doesn't bother to right. him. Right. So the implicit assumption there is this is not an issue to be concerned about. It's so irrelevant, it doesn't cross his mind. Right. So they're making a plot point about his emotional state using the car as a metaphor. And the, the only aspect of that is, it was my wife's, I can't handle it, so I'm throwing away this memento. So that's what I mean when I say your implicit attitude to nature and the ecology that grounds us will come through. 
whether you're oblivious or whether you're mindful. And I think if we just show mindfulness rather than obliviousness as the norm, that will very subtly but probably quite powerfully shift the way we relate to the world. So it doesn't have to be signposted, you know, this is a green scene. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely, because that will just put people off. Anyone yeah. who isn't already on board will switch off because you're, you're right, it has yeah. to be done at a kind of a subliminal level. Is there any psychological work being done on this kind of level of shifting? Yeah, so there's, in the field of, say, literary theory, there's something called narrative transportation And that is the idea that when you're reading about a character or watching a character, you are immersed in their world. And for a while, you see things from their perspective. And that's one of the wonderful things about reading. You know, you get access to another point of view. And unlike, you know, when you're listening to someone actively and you're rationally, you know, analysing what they say and seeing if you agree with it. When you're involved in a character's story, you just absorb their values as their own. And this can give rise to what they call a sleeper effect. So they kind of persist. So that can be for better or worse. Does the character, you know, shop like mad, have a walk-in wardrobe, you know, waste without thought? Or are they mindful? So you will just absorb those values and they can stick with you in a kind of subliminal way. And I think that is the power of writing, whether it be script writing or writing books, is that ability to invite readers into a different set of values or just reinforce their own values. So have you looked at explicit and specific examples of this? So I'm thinking Victoria Goddard, The Hands of the Emperor, which I thought was a really beautiful book, and it explored some extremely widespread social concepts like UBI and different ways in which race can be assimilated in a fantasy world. Mm -hmm. And it was very powerful. It was one of those. I think the sleeper effect is like when you wake up after a dream and the dream hangs over through the day. These are the kinds of books where I'm still feeling as I've just spoken to these people a few days later. Is that what they mean? First of all, is that what they mean? And second, is anybody looking at whether there is a widespread effect? How would you measure that in psychological terms? Yeah, measurement's hard. So there's been quite a lot of stuff done in the field of what they call cultivation theory, where they look at correlations between how much television you watch and consumer behaviour, and they find that the amount of television you watch correlates with the amount of stuff you buy. And especially if you watch with high fashion, and again, then the people who watch that are influenced in their own shopping and and behave, you know, body image right. ideas. So there's quite a lot on TV. Um, when it comes to fiction, hey, Amanda, we can come back off, we can come back on the zigzag to what I was talking about, my yes. third study. Oh, your third study. <laughs> yes, go for it. So I, I didn't look so much at the sleeper effect, but I did have people read four lots of uh, short stories. Two were catastrophic and um, two were solution-focused, you know, with, with the green theme. And I found that the catastrophic ones, a good half of people were switched off by them. They said things like, I felt manipulated or I, um, you know, I wouldn't choose to read any more of this or I switched off. Those who were affected in a kind of motivated to do something way, it was quite passive. You know, something should be done. Hmm. Whereas when I showed 
characters actually doing something. They gave, no one was, was put off for a start, apart from one guy who thought it was a bit fluffy. Not his cup of tea. <laughs> um, but no one was act, actively put off. Sorry, you're so English, not my cup of tea. Uh, no one was actively put off, but um, they were really inspired. So now I've seen this person do this, it made me realise I could do similar. So it went from being a sort of passive despair, oh, everything's going terribly, something should be done, but it probably won't be, to actually, I think I could do this. I might do that. I will do this. So again, so over three different types of terrain, news, education and fiction, they all gave rise to this idea that you need to show solutions and a sense of agency to actually inspire behaviour. Brilliant. And, um, and that's, I think, why I quite like your... I mean, your, your podcast is so good because it's very much on the solution focus. And I've noticed you steer people away, when, you know, when you get too bleak and we all do that. We all do it. But there's no point. Yes, we all know how bad it could be. You know, the handmaid's tale meets the road. It's effortless. Yes. And and I also live in a world, the shamanic world, where where we put our energy is where we get to. So I think it's actively stupid to do that. Water the flowers, not the weeds. Yeah, although... I have friends who would say weeds are amazing and we need to raise them. Actually, I think Habitat Man says Habitat weeds are Man raining. Habitat Man say that. <laughs> yes, definitely. So, so let's talk a little bit about Habitat Man. Did you write it having done these studies and then you wanted to write a novel in which a character gives people agency? Because that's essentially what he's doing, isn't it? Kind of. I mean, partly it was I'd set up this Green Stories writing competitions. We'd run loads of competitions, but I was getting very few stories in that met the criteria simply because it's easier to write about things going wrong than right. sure is. So lazy. <laughs> um, so I thought, well, I'll write one myself. And round about that time, there was this guy locally who'd given up his job, retired early to become a green garden consultant. And he came round and he told me where to put a water butt, um, how to do a pond. That's sounding familiar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, pollinating plants. And, and he said... I would love to do the whole world, but I can only do a few gardens. And I thought, hello, this is a nice idea for a story. So I have him fall in love. I have him dig up a body. Um, a body then is a lovely way to introduce the notion of burial. So A human composting. <laughs> human composting. So uh, the natural burial scene, and actually I was writing that um, when – my mum was dying. So there's a poignancy to it that I think perhaps comes through. Uh, a lot of people wrote to me and they said, I'm actually changed my will to have a natural burial. It sounded so lovely. Fantastic. And then um, our English department thought they wanted to do some research on it. And the University of Utah were interested to do some research. So we've got um, 50 people who read it from start to finish. And we, we sent them a survey a month after to ask them how it had affected their behaviours. And um, because I don't just talk there about um, wildlife gardening, although that's key, you know, there's home composting and so on, but there's things like the one of the lead characters has a dog and I can talk about pet and flea treatments. And how yes, I noticed it was brilliant. So pleased you did that. <laughs> people don't know that, do they? A lot of people don't know no, that the even the vets aren't just are, the worms in your dog. <laughs> No, and your flea treatment isn't just killing fleas, it's killing everything else. Our local vets have stopped selling the oh, spot on, but, but I don't, they're, they're private. They, they, it's a small mm. uh, practice where they 
own it themselves, whereas most of the local practices are owned by the hedge funds, and the hedge funds are never going to do anything that doesn't make money. So, yeah, that's cool. Sorry, carry on. We have um, a sidekick who sets up a random recipe generator. Yes. <laughs> that is actually a real thing I did. I flipped oh, on my it? children once. <laughs> did you get those recipes? I mean, honestly, I look at those and I think, no, you couldn't eat that. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, that one about one of them being a forfeit during games is, is actually a true story. Um, but, yeah, so that's a nice opportunity because only seasonal food, seasonal low-carbon food is on there and there's the joker column with things like nettles and edible insects and a lot of people said you know that woke them up to the idea of seasonal vegetables and low-carbon foods no one tried edible insects yet though um, the composting toilet as a wonderful metaphor for the circular economy <laughs> uh, got a lot of mentions um I got into that at Glastonbury, I think it was. It's so much nicer than the other toilets. And I've got one in my garden. But I thought, if my hero has to have a revelation, why not in a composting toilet? So I kind of had some fun ways of, of working in some of these ideas. So Habitat Man isn't so much about systemic change, although we, I guess we do norm, you know, non-consumerist values. It's much more about what can you do in your back garden but I would question that. It felt to me very values-based. Mm. Tim Tim is an ecologist, and and he does, I thought, get the systemic stuff. And what he's doing is doing what people can do locally without badgering them, yeah. which is exactly what you said, your psychological surveys. If you go up to someone and go, you're doing it all wrong, guess what? They're not going to listen. <laughs> but if you can go up and go, hey, look, we could put a pond here, and then the frogs will come. And, and look, if you plant some hawthorn instead of your fence it'll it'll still give you a, a visual boundary but yeah it's full of pollinators it's i thought it was really cool so it came out in 2021 and you gave these 50 people the questionnaire mm. what was the outcome then so yeah i mean 98 percent um adopted at least one green alternative uh so so that that was that was really reassuring you know it's exactly what, what you hope for what was nice though was the textual ones where they said i was going to get astroturf You're like ah but now I realise, you know, you don't have to mow your lawn all the time. It's better to keep it long. Um, I've, I've grown my lawn, you know, things like that. And a lot of them said, talking about that sleeper effect, what um, the real Habitat man, I'm not allowed to say his name, did for me is he taught me to see my garden in a whole new way, to see it from the perspective, say, of a worm or a bee or a butterfly. Um, and it... it it's like, you know, when you lift a veil and you suddenly see something differently. And you can't go back then. That's the thing. I think it's one of these one-way valves. Once you've started seeing like that, you're never going to go back to the old way. It enriched my view of the world. It's like if you don't know anything about art and you go to an art gallery with someone who does, suddenly you can see so much more in a painting. And I really wanted to try and convey that to my readers and get them to see things, not from such an anthropocentric way, but from the perspective you know, of, of the wildlife and the, the birds and so on. So, and that was something that came through as well in some of the results, that they'd learnt to see their garden in a whole new way. So two years down the line, is there any mileage and would you consider and have you considered going back and asking those same 50 again to see how in, enduring or durable their changes have been? Um, you know what, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> um, I'm working on so many other projects at the moment, though, um, but yeah, that would be nice to do. Because if you could demonstrate that you know mm -hmm. they had, I don't know, abandoned the idea of astroturf for yeah. a no mow lawn, 
and then they'd put in a pond and then they'd planted yes. that and they'd got their neighbours to do it. Because we find some accidental God students in the UK and the US have gone for the, the no mow, mm -hmm. let's just not mow. But, and particularly in the US, the, the neighbourhood watch, whatever it's called, I forget, sorry, mm -hmm. American people, but it sounds like the local stormtroopers basically get incredibly upset if you don't have the white picket fence and your lawn at the requisite quarter of a millimetre length. But if you put a sign in there saying, I think the American one is homegrown national park, don't yes. tell me, or in the UK it's we are the ark, mm -hmm. then it becomes a talking point. And then you can discuss it. And then two or three years down the line, other people are doing the same. And so that would be interesting is what's the what's the R number? How, how much does this spread? Because it seems to me if we can get an R number greater than one, mm. as in you know, viral spread, yeah. replicable R number, if we can get an R number greater than one of thinking about your garden from the perspective of a butterfly or a worm, then we're on to change that will be durable and will expand. I mean, there's a nice point about putting a note to say what you're doing, because I emailed the council saying, please, can you not mow the borders? Just, you know, let the dandelions grow. The nettles grow their good habitats and um please don't use pesticides <laughs> you know let's go pesticide free and they wrote back saying the things people complain and i said well just put a little note saying we're doing this for wildlife uh, for example on our local sort of website forum someone was complaining and someone said no they do that for, for habitats and they said oh well that's brilliant then i think right, they're exactly. trying to save money or just being lazy. yes and, and the fact that they do save money as well is an added bonus. We've got something called RSVP, Rural Shropshire Verges Project, and I drove down a particular lane this morning and there is a great big, like a road sign saying this verge is not to be mown until August, yeah. you know, being kept. And I don't think the council put that there. I think the project put that there. But it does mean that even if the farmers are getting a little bit Hmm. You know, trigger happy with their, their tractor and their mowers, they'd have to actually mow over this sign <laughs> or try and pull it out of the ground to get to the verge. It's just education, isn't it, really? It's yeah, yeah. And and exactly that. I think, you know, somehow I'm trying locally to just persuade everybody that they must not buy Roundup. Just don't buy it. Mm. And then my next move is to get to the local shops and go, please don't sell it. Just stop selling Roundup. I'm really worried about pesticides. Yeah. Yeah, we wanted to wipe out the entirety of the biosphere. Then you know, the product of Monsanto is pretty much how we're going to do it. But we don't, and we don't need it. And and countering the narrative that the only way to feed the planet is by industrial farming, for instance, which is manifestly untrue, needs to be expanded. That's a whole other sidetrack. Let's not go down there. Let's come back to your work, your writing. I I love the fact that you're actually gathering evidence base for what you're doing and you said you're really busy and there's other things that you're involved in so what are you doing along these lines just now okay, well last year's project which has given rise to what i'm doing now is um an anthology where we we put together experienced writers like kim stanley robinson who did ministry for the future and paolo bakigalupi sarah foster with with climate experts and we compiled 24 short stories that had transformative climate solutions at their heart. And they're really engaging stories. Some are like comedy, some are romances, some are action, some are family dramas. Um, some are very poetic and lyrical. Others are very information-y, you know, dry for the techies. 
and they encounter, you know, include nature-based ones, um, more carbon capture technical ones, um, more systemic ones. Um, so all all approaches really. Yeah, and Kim Stanley Robinson gave you a bit of his book, which I was really impressed with. He's the bit about the the carbon um, currency, which is brilliantly worked out. Very impressed. So it's called No More Fairy Tales: Stories to Save Our Planet. And um, we managed to get it ready in time for COP27 and they shared it there. It was all a bit last minute, but we just about got it ready. And we each story links to a website. And if you think, okay, I love the solutions in that, I want to help make them happen, you can click on that and we show what you can do at the individual level, if you're a business, if you're a funder, you know, government, and so on. So trying to actually sort of get some engagement and harness you know, that energy from reading it into actual solutions. And what have been the responses to that? Because you handed this out at COP, didn't you? So did it, did you get much feedback then? And have you had much feedback or chance to do studies since? Yes. Yeah, so um, part of it, part of the reason the writers were so keen to get involved is I think a lot of us writers therapy. We think if we can write the solutions, maybe they will happen. Yes. And uh, we had a couple of stories that sort of showcased the idea of the ocean as nation. What if we gave nation status to the ocean? That way, at the moment, you can pretty well do what you want as long as it's not a marine protected area. No one's going to tell you off, even if it's massively destructive. Yes. What, what if you couldn't do that? Or what if you had to pay to travel across or take the ocean's resources? And that money then could be fed into sea kelp, rest, you know, seagrass restoration, kelp restoration, and so on. Um, so, and giving nation status or legal status to nature is an incredibly effective solution. So um, one of the guys, Steve Willis, he was one of the sort of energy you know, forces behind the, the anthology. And um, he put this idea forward and we had a number of authors working on it. And it was, um, he was at the Pan-Asian Ocean Summit last year, soon after that. And he got a lot of traction. A lot of people were interested. Wow. And our own head of law at the University of Southampton said, Hmm, this isn't actually a bad idea. <laughs> cool. And they now can, can they put it on the agenda to talk about at the next Ocean Summit? Um, so there's, you know, it started the conversation. Yes. I don't know, I mean, if it will ever happen, but it certainly did inspire conversations around that theme. It, it probably won't happen like it does in the story. But the idea is out there and seeded. I think this is what inspires me so much about what you're doing is that you're getting ideas out there. And you're right, it might not be exactly that. But the only way we're going to break the current paradigm is if people see that there are alternatives. I think a lot of the reason that our ruling classes do nothing is because they have no idea what could be done other than what Steve Bannon feeds them, which is not where we want to go. But if they if they had a vision for a future that would work, that touched them in whatever lump of lead passes for a heart. Um, yes, that was terribly judgmental, but still. I've been watching the Nat C conference. I cannot believe that these people are standing up and talking at something that's called Nat hyphen C, and they don't think that's a problem. Anyway, um, if they were given solutions that seemed to work within their framing and that we felt worked within a wider framing, it's not impossible they would do it. I also think that there's a freedom in fiction. You can paint a picture and some of the ideas could be quite complicated and it's quite hard for people to remember facts. But if you, if you couch it in a story, it's much more memorable, much more easy to understand. 
Um, so, for example, one of the solutions we talk about is personal carbon trading or personal carbon allowances. And that was an idea that was proposed um, by DEFRA, the Sustainable Roundtable, back in 2007. David Miliband, if you remember him, was talking about a carbon credit card. And people um, were getting quite excited about this idea that we would have our own personal carbon allowance. And what I loved about that was at the moment, I don't know about you, but I either spend a lot of my time feeling guilty for what I'm doing or seething with resentment because I've given up something I really love, but everyone else is busy flying off here, there and eating steak. And, you know, so it's not pleasant to be, you know, moving from guilt to resentment and back. But if we all had our own personal carbon allowance, you know, that you were responsible for, that is fair, that is equitable. And if you went under, you know, by being ever so green and good, you could then sell your spare carbon credits and make a ton of money. Great. If you went over, will you pay through the nose to get some more? Fine. You are paying for your impact on the planet. Whereas at the moment, there's very little incentive, to be honest, other than your values to to go green. Okay, this is raising. I wish we'd started with this. First of all, if you haven't read The Carbon Diaries by Saki Lloyd, they came out in 2015. Definitely worth reading those. They're they're young adult books, but they're brilliant. I will link them in the show notes. However, you and I, I believe, both understand that carbon alone is not the problem. That's point one. Point two is I'm quite involved in Pasture-Fed Livestock Association, regenerative farming as a whole, <laughs> in looking at how far along the chain do you go to estimate carbon? Because the only way that people like Monbiot get their precision fermentation of proteins as in any way quotes sustainable and they're using you know, the word sustainable is doing a lot of work there and most of it is fake is because they're not counting all the way up the chain you know, the whole let's eat vegan only works if you don't count the impact at every level of industrial farming and you have to count the fact that, for instance that if you put you put nitrogen on the land in whatever form you put it urea ammonia whatever most of it will combine with atmospheric oxygen and create one of the oxides of nitrogen, which is monumentally more global warming impact mm -hmm. than carbon dioxide. You'd have to count all of that. And and it seems to me that the that could be done. We do have the computing power for that now. The overwhelm of that would be huge. And the, the realisation, I'm trying to remember who it is that said this. I will dig it out in a bit that nothing that we have in the Western world just now mm -hmm. is, is valued at its genuine value. You'd have to increase the prices of absolutely everything if we were going to really cost them at their actual cost instead of simply dumping stuff into the oceans or the atmosphere or the ground or enslaving people in other countries on, on wages that are completely not livable. How does the idea of carbon credits pan out in a Western society that's still basically in denial about the realities of the impact of how we live. Right. So, oh, there's a lot to unpack there, <laughs> Sorry, there is, but you can do it. I, I haven't met many people who, who got the depth, so go for it, Denise. Okay, let's try. Um, well, a lot of the points you make were the reason why it didn't take off back in 2007. It was an idea ahead of its time. So it required us to be scared enough 
to do it, we weren't. <laughs> and it required a level of carbon footprints, you know, technology and calculations we didn't have. Now we are scared enough and we do have that carbon footprint, not perfect, but you can't let perfect be the enemy of the better. Absolutely. And I think the, the way, if I was going to introduce it, you would start small. You would start perhaps just with your energy, with your fuel. Now, at the moment, when we pay for energy, it's quite expensive for the first bit we produce, we, we consume, and then it gets cheaper. Hmm. It should be completely the other way around. Because the moment you increase the cost of energy, you know, and you've got people shivering and dying from cold and full fuel poverty. Well, if you make the first essential bit really cheap and then make everything above that expensive, you inverse it. And that's kind of what personal carbon analysis would do effectively. But even just on heating, you would have to actually have a program to insulate everybody's houses before that was in any way equitable. And then... How do we get around the transport? So, so a lot of our current fossil fuel use, huge amounts in manufacturing, huge amounts in agriculture, and then transport, both transport of goods and materials and then transport of people, and then heating. Each of those strikes me that the people with lots of money will just carry on having their private jets, and the people with not very much money will end up having quite a lot less money. If we don't build equitability equity into the system? How does your system build equity in? Well, let's start from the position now. We have no equity at all. That's true. Yes, yes. I'm not suggesting the current system is working at all. And the rich can trash the, the planet with no consequence. Yep, true. Okay. That's where we're starting from. Um, personal carbon allowances act like a kind of ration. So like in wartime, when certain things were short, you would only be allowed to so, so much of that. So if we think of carbon emissions, it doesn't have you could do greenhouse in a carbon dioxide equivalent, which is kind of takes into account nitrous oxide and okay. methane and so on. Um, if you take that and you ration that, then most people who are, you know, within the poverty, no close to the poverty line, you know, the sort of lower income people would be better off. They estimate 71% of them would be better off under that system because they would be consuming less than their carbon allowance and they could sell their spare credits. So those who are consuming more, it's kind of like a progressive form of taxation. And what it would do is it would funnel investment into low carbon products. So for example, I could buy milk that's been grown in a regenerative, sustainable farm and it use up fewer carbon credits right. <laughs> than the milk that's being produced differently. You know, people might still want to fly, but it uses up their entire carbon allowance. If you want a sustainable aviation fuel, that's suffering from lack of investment. Investment would pour into it. You can be sure of that. So it would harness our own consumer behaviour to seek out low-carbon alternatives. Why would we ever have flown in asparagus or flown in beans when they use 10 times the carbon allowance right. of what's in season? Okay. At the moment, there's no difference in price. Right. So it's not really on our radar. Supermarkets would start labelling that because it would matter to us. So the price and the carbon cost would be almost equally important to us. And it would be quite bureaucratic. The more careful we were to get the carbon calculations correct, the more work it would be. 
But even done in the broadest possible strokes, it would be a hell of an improvement and funnel our own behaviour and innovation towards a low-carbon economy. It's brilliant. Do I have a combat? <laughs> yeah, well, you, you have the beginnings of a combat because I'm also I'm reading Robert Lustig's book Metabolical, which is just blowing my mind. And mm-hmm. 93% of Americans have metabolic disease and it's because of the food industry which subsidizes corn growing and then produces corn syrup and everything is flooded with fructose and it's completely destroying the nation's health. I don't think ours is any better. So, mm-hmm. And industrial farming is going to be very carbon credit heavy. Regenerative farming potentially done the right way, not the let's spray the fields with glyphosate but not plow them way. Proper regenerative farming is going to be much more carbon light. I I do like it. I'm not sure I want anyone devising a fossil-free airline fuel because I just think flying has to stop. I think on every level it's not a good thing. But but yes, yes. What this makes me think of is there was an incident in ancient Rome. And the thing you have to remember about ancient Rome is that they all drank their wine that was warmed in lead vessels. So the entire upper class had chronic low-grade lead poisoning, which excuses, or at least explains, it doesn't excuse anything, explains a lot. And one of the less bright, chinless wonders in the Roman Senate decided it would be a jolly good idea to get all the slaves to wear armbands so that you could see that they were slaves. And the slightly more switched-on ones went, how many slaves have you got? And they're going, I don't know, three, three, four, five hundred. And they're going, the average is 500 per senator. Mm -hmm. So I want you to imagine going out into the forum and there being 500 to 1 of people who realise that there's 500 to 1, how long do you think we're going to last? And the idea was dropped instantly. And so it seems to me that carbon credits is a bit like, oh, OK, guys, let's just give everybody the chance to see who's blowing everything and who isn't and see how long the people who are blowing everything get to carry on blowing everything. It's it's It would be putting numbers on conspicuous consumption in ways that currently we don't quite have. I I think it'd be amazing. Um, I would be really surprised if the masters of the universe who rule over us at the moment would ever entertain the idea. So this this leads nicely on to my latest project. (laughs) Yay! Oh, that was a neat segue. (laughs) Completely by accident. But um, as we discussed, it took a little bit of explaining, didn't it? to get the concept over. Uh, all of my yes buts, sorry, but yeah. <laughs> but I mean, there are obvious questions you, you would ask, yeah? And it's, so it's a difficult concept to raise awareness of. It's not something a politician can do in a soundbite. It's something, you know, the right-wing reactionaries would easily throw mud at. Um, so fiction is a really nice way, it's a safe space to introduce these kinds of ideas. So my favourite story uh, in terms of impact, I think, in uh, No More Fairy Tales, Stories to Save the Planet, was The Assassin, which is set in a citizens' assembly where eight people meet to debate climate solutions. And one of them is an assassin, just to give it a bit of fun, a bit of whodunit. And they talk about things like, um, you know, a repair bill. And the point is, well, OK, so we don't, we have repair cafes and right to repair. It doesn't mean anyone would. Too easy to buy new. We have things like, you know, the sharing economy, libraries of things, tool libraries. And it's like, well, I've got a library, I can borrow books, but I still buy them new. 
Why, you know, there's not enough uptake. We have things like on-demand transport because we know we can't all just have electric cars. There's not enough lithium for a start. Um, you know, if you had super public transport with buses that came when you called them and everyone signed up, so it was massively cheap and efficient and went everywhere, who would want your own car? It would be like living in London. No one has a car in London. Um, but again, people won't sign up because they want their own car. And the personal carbon allowance solves all those problems because the moment you have that, all these other great ideas suddenly can take off. And these ideas that, you know, are massively convenient. Who wants to have everything, all your tools and bread bins and cycle racks and tennis rackets hogging up all your space? If you could just go to a local library of things and borrow it and know you could get access. You know, who would want the burden of ownership of the car if you could just, you know, get great public transport? So personal carbon allowances is a great way. And these are the solutions debated in the Citizens' Assembly. But the biggest solution of all is that democratic process. Because like you said, no government's going to vote for it. Governments, as we've seen, it's empirically shown. <laughs> we've known about the climate crisis for 40 years now. No representative democracy has made even close to the amount of regulations and climate policies you know, that they need to because a four-year electoral cycle they're always going to prioritise short-term goals over long-term existential threats. And the lobby ensures that we have the best democracy money can buy. It's it's a wholly corrupt system. You've got the whole vested interests as well. You've got the fact that people there don't represent the population. Citizens' assemblies have been shown to um, make really considered sustainable decisions. Um, you're looking doubtful. <laughs> Well, I am looking doubtful in that I was really impressed with the citizens' assemblies in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Gay marriage and the right to have an abortion, absolutely really impressed. I was deeply underimpressed with the citizens' assembly that the UK Parliament, not the government, convened because it seemed to me that the people in there were not given access to the kind of data that they would have needed to make an actual considered concept and that citizens' assemblies are fantastic provided the people within them are adequately informed. And how do we know, particularly as we're entering the era where AI is going to be able to create fake facts, you know, within the next year, learning to trust what you're giving to your citizens' assemblies so that you can trust the decisions that they make strikes me as one of the very, very big questions of our time. Is this something that you're looking at and have you got ideas? Well, information is key. I'd say pretty well most of the big decisions over the last decade, not just in the UK, but internationally, have been made on the basis of misinformation. Hmm. Most referendums, political decisions have been made on the basis of either partial or misinformation. So again, the bar is low. Um, But the idea behind citizens' assemblies is, is one, the people there will represent the society in terms of gender and class and education and region and, and ethnicity and so on. Um, so they're way more representative. Two, a variety of stakeholders relevant to that topic will present information. And like you say, that's crucial, hmm. what information they have access to. And so there's a learning phase there's a deliberation phase and they tend to work in tables of about eight with a chair whose job it is to ensure that everyone gets a fair 
sort of chance to, to speak their turn and they come up with recommendations. And this is where it falls down. Their recommendations have generally been very good, but it's up to the governments whether they decide to accept them. And so uh, I think in France, they have more actual power. And in mm. cities like Gen- uh, Gdansk in Poland, they really got tons of great policy through. So they have been shown to have real power in some places, but certainly in, in the UK, it's been advice only. And that's what's held them back. So my next project is a play. I've adapted The Assassin as a play called Murder in the Citizen's Jury. And um, so, and the issue is, if they actually report the murder, will it bring down citizens' juries? So this is the first one which has actual power. And the very reporting of the murder itself (laughs) could bring down what they think is going to be the silver bullet to help us make good decisions. And so there's a crisis of conscience and it's interactive. The audience then have to vote are we going to prosecute? Um, oh, wow. So it's kind of fun. I get the audience to vote on the climate solutions debated and and whether or not to, to prosecute the murder. And I think, I've, I had a promise it would be shown at COP28, but I'm still at the trying to do a read-through of the first draft and make sure wow. it works properly. You know. And are you working with the dramatist? Um, so I worked with uh, Naomi Elster, who... Uh, she's written some plays and she actually was on the Northern Ireland um, Citizens' Assembly. Fantastic. Right. So she has inside information. Fantastic. And she knows about climate communication and health communication. So she helped me sort of take it from the book stage to a play stage. And then it was back in my hands to kind of, you know, fiddle around with it. And uh, I'm still fiddling around with it. Because <laughs> it strikes me that this could also be television. I don't know how you get the voting, but I know they do voting for... I don't know, online television game stuff. So this could be a play for today kind of style television or it could just be adapted as a TV script and then you would get much wider. Any reach. producers out there? Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe do it as a play and then we can just try and spin it mm-hmm. to anyone. I mean, obviously, climate Hollywood Climate Forum would presumably be interested. It's worth a try. Get it done as a play first. Get people to see it. If it's at the next COP, then hopefully somebody will be there watching. That sounds really exciting. Gosh, and and time. How did the time go so fast? This is, it just feels so exciting. So I have one last question. I remember quite a long time ago, Neil Gaiman gave a speech in London somewhere where he said that mm-hmm. he was talking to the people who built prisons in America because prisons are private and you don't make any money if you either have too few cells or two more. And he was asking them, how do you know how big to make your prisons? And they said there was an inverse relationship between the number of young men who ended up in prison and the percentage who were reading books by the age of 12. So more young men reading books by the age of 12, fewer young men in prison five, six, seven, ten years later. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, now at least 10 years old, that work. And I'm wondering if there's any work that you're aware of correlating reading now because social media didn't exist back then things were occupying people's attention the attention harvesting of humanity was not such a big thing how is reading going down now is it only those of us who read as kids and who are you know demographic churn is going to take us out in the next 20 years or are young people reading books in increasing numbers or do we not know 
I don't know. I, I mean, I hear bits and pieces. So I hear that BookTok is doing quite a lot to encourage young readers. I didn't even know BookTok existed. Okay. Yeah, so it's a sort of part of the whole TikTok thing. Um, and you do get what they call whale readers who tend to just read huge amounts of genre fiction. So they sign up right. for the Kindle Unlimited and they will just, you know, consume large amounts of either romances or thrillers or fantasy or whatever their, their genre. I think I'm probably a whale reader. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> but I, I don't have the stats. But what you said about Neil Gaiman doesn't surprise me at all. It's that capacity to empathise that you were talking about at the start. It's that capacity to... to step into a world if the writer has done it well enough mm -hmm. you are that person whoever's viewpoint you're seeing audiobooks i think are providing a whole new way for people to access books so for those who actually don't like to sit down and read i mean everywhere you go now people have got their headphones on so listening to audiobooks podcasts music so i i think yes it's still going on but perhaps in different ways hmm. Okay, that's heartening to know. I certainly know in the publishing world, audiobooks are now a major stream, mm -hmm. along with ebooks, obviously. And it's good to know that when you see people with earphones and they're not all just listening to the horrible dopamine hit of, of canned music, which personally I think should be banned, but I know it's everybody's deepest addiction and they really hate it when I suggest that. <laughs> Is there anything else that you would like to share with the audience? Because this has felt so rich and so inspiring. No, it's been really nice. You forced me to think through a, a lot of things. I've been properly drilled in the relationship between, you know, academic research and, and, and what I'm doing. But I, I think the key points I wanted to get across, I guess, are that writing is a nice way to kind of visualise how something might work in practice and to play with quite transformative ideas, such as what if we had personal carbon analysis? And you said the carbon diaries it shows it in a sort of young adult coming of age story, doesn't it? A little bit dystopian. And there's certainly not something anyone likes. <laughs> but um, yeah, nicely done. So I would like to mention I've got a Green Stories writing competitions coming up all the time. Yep. We'll put a link in the show notes to that website. And it's short stories and novels and other formats. Well, we, it depends on our sponsors. So um anyone wants to sponsor some more that's great but at the moment we've got a novel prize coming up into June and we've got a short story prize it's quite a techie one for your more science people <laughs> um and um, I expect we'll have more again you know in the future so people want to keep an eye on the green stories website they're all free to enter and um as long as they're in English really brilliant I will definitely put a link in the show notes Denise, thank you. This has been so inspiring. I will link also to Habitat Man and to No More Fairy Stories and to your own website. So if there's anywhere else that you think we should know about, let me know. One more. One, one more. Yes. So that campaign I said with BAFTA, if you check out hashtag climate characters, or one word, capital C's, or hashtag hot or not, you'll see some of those fun Instagrams and do encourage you to take the survey because we include a link to the survey as well are they on twitter yeah no they're on twitter as well okay and then we just need mastodon which is the nice version of twitter and doesn't involve engaging with elon musk <laughs> brilliant fantastic denise this has been so inspiring and right up my street i love basically you're a thrutopian long before i was <laughs> so so i'm deeply 
deeply happy to have spoken to you and so glad that there's academic work being done to demonstrate what things work because we're beyond the stage of just guessing what might work. We need to know what actually works. So thank you for doing all of the studies on that. It's grand. I think probably give it a year and we'll have you back and see what you've got to with with your play and with whatever studies you've done in the interim. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I love your guests. They're always so inspiring. So I'm absolutely honoured to count myself among their number now. Fantastic. Mutual (laughs) Appreciation Society. That's the way we like it. Thank you. And we'll talk to you again sometime. Take care. Bye-bye. And that's it for this week. Enormous thanks to Denise for all that she is and does. This felt so inspiring to know that there's somebody else who gets it, who's really looking at the data and is able to produce hard numbers to show people that dystopian writing is not useful. I am kind of thinking utopian writing is probably not useful as well, and there may be data to prove that. And I didn't think to ask, so I'm going to ask Denise offline. But in the meantime, if you have any voice in the world at all, from Twitter to TikTok to Instagram to Facebook to columns in the Parish Post or your local equivalent, local newspapers, local radio, to the bigger stuff, BBC, Channel 4, CNN, whatever is in your country, please begin to develop concepts of what will work, of what will actually touch people. Because we know now that simply saying you're wrong and everything's falling apart does not work. What works, as Denise so clearly said, is giving people a sense of agency and creating that social legitimacy around what we're doing. If you have any way of doing that, I think it's one of the single most important actions that we can take. And if you're writing a novel that has Thrutopian themes, please go and look at greenstories, all one word, dot org, org, dot uk, and look at the writing competitions. The novel prize is still open. The deadline is the 26th of June. All of the instructions are there, and it's free to enter. So give it a go. Why not? And if you aren't writing something yet, get on and write something. You've got a whole month. You can write thousands of words in a month. Trust me on this. And if there is an appetite out there for specifically Thrutopian writing tutorials, online work, I might be open to that. I am not, I'm sorry, open to reading everybody's individual stuff. I absolutely haven't got the time. But if we wanted to come together on a regular basis and simply talk through the ideas of the ideas and basic principles of writing, then I would be open to that. So I don't know if people want that or if it would be useful. I have a tendency to think there's an awful lot of how to write stuff already online and it's probably not a useful use of my time and emotional energy to create more. But if we specifically want to talk about writing Thrutopian stuff and the actual mechanics of that, which is not what the Thrutopia.life is about, that's about the content, not the mechanics. If we want to look at mechanics, then I would be up for that. So let me know. Manda at accidentalgods.life And in the meantime, enormous thanks, as ever, to Caro C for the music at the head and foot 
and for the hours that she puts into the production of these podcasts. To Faith Tillery for designing the website for keeping it beautiful and for the conversations that keep us moving forward. To Anne Thomas for wrestling with the transcripts, which some weeks is harder than others. And, as ever, to you for continuing to listen, for engaging, for caring about the things that really do matter. And if you know of anybody else who wants to be inspired by the power of story to change the world, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you. And goodbye.